This is the best of the Glenn Beck Program. Love. Courage. Truth. Glenn Beck. We should listen and respect those who have, um, who have lived through a mass shooting, especially after they have gained perspective. Patrick was a sophomore at Columbine High School when Dylan Klebold and Eric uh, Harris massacred their classmates. He was one of the lucky ones. He walked away with his life that day. And he vowed that he would live a life of service because God had granted him that blessing of living. So Patrick went on to join the Army. He served a tour in Iraq. When he came home, he was elected to the Colorado State House of Representatives, where he served his constituents since uh, 2014. Every year since he was elected, Patrick has introduced legislation to remove the restrictions on concealed carry in school. In the wake of the Stoneman Douglas shooting and the renewed call for gun control, Patrick is pushing his legislation just as hard. Under the current Colorado law, anyone who has a concealed carry permit may bring firearms onto school property, but you have to keep them locked inside their vehicles. That's a quote from the law. Patrick says that doesn't go far enough. His act would allow every law-abiding citizen who holds a concealed carry permit the right to defend themselves and others at all times. Patrick says, time and time again, we point to one common theme with the mass shootings. They all occur in gun-free zones. As a former Columbine student who was a sophomore during the shooting on April 20th, 1999, I will do everything in my power to prevent Colorado families from enduring the hardships that my classmates and I faced that day. People are arguing, and we're going to continue to argue. More guns equals more violence, but they forget that the vast majority of guns are in the hands of responsible and good people. There was a coach that stood in the way, used his body to block. If he had a gun... How many could he have saved? He died a hero, but many died after him. The reality is, we are bringing nothing to a gunfight with evil every single day. Perhaps we should have this conversation, but we should listen to all sides so we can give ourselves and our children a chance with an equal contender. If you uh, listen at all to the uh, program, you know that I I read an awful lot, um, and I can go through I can go through two or three books uh, a week pretty easily. And I thought I would devour this book by Eric Kurtlander, uh, Hitler's Monsters. But this has taken me about a month to get through, mainly because I get sidetracked and start looking up the things that he is pointing out because you've never heard any of this before and it will give you a couple of things a new look on what allowed the nazi movement to really grow and grow deep roots for a while um and also the fact that no uh-uh now, this was not a Christian movement, which a lot of people like to say, National Socialism, Hitler was a Christian. No, uh-uh. no, no, that was not a Christian movement. 
Um, the only guy that has done serious work on the supernatural history of the Third Reich is Eric Kurtlander. Uh, and he joins us now, and I, I, I want to make sure that you understand that this isn't some guy who's just like, I just did some research. Uh, he has his Ph.D. of Modern European History at Harvard from Harvard, M.A. Modern European History, Harvard, B.A. History uh, at, is it Bodoin College? I, I'm not familiar with Bowden. that one. Bowden. Bowden College, sorry. Belgian, Bowden, yeah. Belgian, okay. Well, welcome. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of this book, uh, and thank you for... How many years did it take you to compile all this? Well, thank you, Glenn, for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. I um, I watched the show many years ago when Robert Galately, uh, one of my colleagues at mm. Florida State University, was on. I yeah. think he had a book comparing Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini. And I appreciated the way you brought in uh, academic historians into your um, conversation. Thank so, you. Thank you. So thank you for having me on. Um, and like many academic monographs, it took me uh, a good eight to ten years from conception to going to archives and doing the due diligence, reading other people's work, and then finally starting writing, presenting it, and eventually deciding I had a critical mass of information to make my arguments. And it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be a reviewer somewhere who's like, well, you know, you could have looked at that or this. But as you point out, it's pretty dense already. I mean, at some point, you've got to say, enough. you're right. Ready yeah, and uh, uh, and get it out there. There's a couple of things, and 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 I want you to kind of lead this uh, a bit, but I I, I want to ask you a couple of questions up front um, that I think show the depth of your research. One, um, you went, and this fascinated me. You went to the detail of looking at books that Hitler had collected and had read, and you looked for things he underlined. And there were a couple of things uh, that that you talked about. And I can only find one of them now uh, as I was looking this morning. Uh, but one that he underlined uh, was uh, horror always lurks at the bottom of the magical world and everything holy is always mixed with horror. This comes from uh, a book called Magic in 1923. He underlined this. And he, he, there was also another quote about something about a truly great man has to have the seeds of a demon inside of him. That he did underline. The other quotes from a page that he had underlined, but he hadn't underlined that particular quote. Um, and I want to be very clear about this, because this is an important methodological point. Um, a fellow historian, a journalist who writes history, found the book in the Library of Congress, where we have uh, Hitler's library. And it seems to be uh, underlined and annotated in the way that Hitler had annotated other books. We're not 100% certain he read and annotated it, but he's the most likely suspect. So I use this book to represent, you know, a kind of uh, the cultural milieu in which he may have been thinking, because it seems that he read it. And then I, I tie in other sources that talk about Hitler um, seeming to, you know, be interested in parapsychology, magic, e even if he just thinks it's a way to manipulate people and not an actual force in the universe. Um, he clearly was involved in that kind of milieu. That's the point I'm making. And it does appear that he underlined 66 pass passages in that book. But as someone who is not, I'm not a specialist in handwriting, um, I don't know for certain that he did. I just want to put that out there. So, Eric, um, the other thing I, that I, I thought would be important to um, start with to show the depth of your research was um, the, I mean, you go back into the 1800s and you're really trying to lay out the mindset of, of Germans at that time, 
Um, and I was not aware, and you talk a lot about the films that were made, uh, the silent films, in the teens and the 20s. And I went back, and I don't remember which one I watched, but I watched one of these silent films um, uh, that you pointed out in your book, and it is terrifying. And it is, it, it, it the, the, the distortion of the Jew into a monster, or later Nosferatu, the vampire, right. is is terrifying that that went on so long without the Nazis. Right. So a number of film scholars and literary scholars have argued that Weimar, because of all the trauma it went through, the way that people in Weimar processed it was by through horror, through expressionism, through very kinds of avant-garde artistic um, um, media that were, you know, channeling a kind of return of the repressed, right? And I try to show the ways in which um, certain images, monstrous images of the other, right? Jews, Slavs, communists were portrayed in, a, in not an empirical way. Here's what's going to happen to the economy if finance capital does that or the communists do this, but in a, in a metaphysical or yeah. supernatural way, right? And, that's, and I'm trying to show how that culture precedes the Nazis. It doesn't mean everyone who watched horror movies was a Nazi, but their way of processing trauma and crisis, um, I argue, was influenced by a, a kind of supernatural thinking. How much, um, uh, how much of this came from the the churches uh, i know the churches in the west in, in england etc cetera, etc cetera, many of them were really damaged because of world war 1 um and the people were kind of shook uh from that and they kind of started to see wait a minute the church is just really kind of a political organ here um how much of this return to magic um uh, in germany came from the churches uh kind of selling out or, or not being what churches should be? It's a, that's an excellent question, and you're not going to want me to get into too much detail here. But what I will say is I point out in Chapter 1 that Max Weber, the famous sociologist who was alive at the time, said clearly the traditional churches in the wake of hyper-industrialization, even before World War I, and science are no longer providing the kind of answers for a lot of people, a lot of younger people living certainly in cities that they used to provide. And yet, with this disenchantment of the world, right, people still need something higher than themselves. They need faith in something. If science isn't going to do it and traditional religion doesn't do it, what's in between? Well, New Age religion, occultism, these so-called border sciences that claim to explain everything, like world ice theory, but really can't be proven empirically. That's a vehicle for faith. Pulp fiction, science fiction. And we see that across the West after the 1890s and especially after World War I with the decline in traditional religion. We even see some of the Catholic and Protestant um, leaders trying to tap into that more grassroots, supernatural um, uh, way of thinking. But, but what I argue, and I guess this is something that, as you point out in the intro, it would be reassuring for you as, a, as someone who believes in the Judeo-Christian ethos in the West, it's usually the, to the degree that they move away from that, that they're open to these new ways of thinking. Um, I don't find a lot of devout Catholics and Protestants 
who who like who believe in world ice theory, for example. Right. Um, but it, they're compatible because they're both faith-based ways of thinking. But I do think you've got to take a step away from traditional religion towards what I would call border science or occultism in order to find that as your kind of new religion, right? So you're right that that while the churches may have made certain concessions to it or, sure. like you say, become too political, I don't think that Christianity per se was a bridge to this kind of thinking. Um, and I don't mean it exactly that way. I mean, the absence of uh, right. that thinking uh, led people to go find something that was different and, and worked. Um, uh, I want to have you explain uh, border science and, and things like that um, when we come back and kind of get in and set the groundwork of what they actually believed and what they used i mean the idea that they were using astrologers and divining rods to to find submarines is is amazing and uh, eventually the the miracle weapons that they were going after and the reason why possibly they did not get the bomb is is an is an amazing revelation and we'll get to that here in just a second book is Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. Eric Kurlander is the artist, if you're an author, if you're the uh, a fan of like those incredible, crazy, you know, documentaries they've made it, on this topic. No, this goes much, much further. Oh, much further. And, and it explains it with real credibility. Yeah. Um, this is, this is Indiana Jones and the, you know, Holy Grail and the <laughs> Last Crusade. Uh, it is, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant and... And Captain America. But it's the real stuff. Mm. It's amazing. We have um, Eric Kurtlander on. He is the author of a book, uh, Hitler's Monsters. This is a serious scholarly book about the supernatural history of the Third Reich and, and what they believed and what they used. Um, uh, Eric, help me out. Let's get a c- couple of definitions. What define the occult? What does that mean? Is that devil stuff? Right. So I started out thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to look at occultism, whatever that means. And then I realized that occult is a pretty specific meaning for for scholars. It's things related to demonology, um, witchcraft, um, certain uh, what I later call border sciences, but really that are linked to things like astrology and dowsing um, and doctrines like ariosophy or anthroposophy. These are also things that usually come under the umbrella of occultism, something that's between religion and science and, and will help you uncover a secret world or a hidden world, right? That's where the, the term comes from. Pretend, um, pretend I read the book, but still could not get my arms around the osophies can you right can you define those excellent question and and and, and again th- these osophies are larger doctrines which supposedly explain the world um in ways that traditional religion and science can't because they integrate both so theosophy which madam blavatsky a russian thinker in the mid to late 19th century came up with is this idea that um, if you study the religions of the East and the kind of practices of the East and unite it with Darwinism um, and, and evolution, you can come up with a, a syncretic doctrine that explains all of world history. 
So she came up with this idea of root races, the most superior of which um, lived in Atlantis. Uh, millennia earlier, maybe mated with extraterrestrials. And then these other races, which had various qualities. You know, the early theosophists were not as explicitly racist as the later anthroposophists or ariosophists, obviously with Arian in the title, but they all believed in this idea of root races that, that modern biology and Darwinism makes sense, but it's got to be leavened with Eastern philosophy and religion. Um, and that you can understand the stages of world history through that. And if you reverse engineer everything, you can get back in touch both spiritually and racially with the, the great root races of the earlier period. And so much of what they were doing was having seances and following certain doctrines to, to try to get back in touch with humanity when it was at its highest point. You can see why that was attractive to some Central Europeans. Yeah. In the folkish movement, the more racialist political movements and anti-Semitic movements, because it in a way justified their view of the world. So, Eric, um, I just want to go back. I was I was interested to read how much they were into Eastern religion. And I can't remember. Was it was it Himmler that carried around the sayings of Buddha in his pocket? Yeah, the, the Bhagavad Gita. It's not exactly the same thing. But yeah, uh, Himmler, Hess, Rudolf Hess, the deputy Fuhrer, Walter Dare. These were, um, this, this, this would not be something that people would expect. No, and, but it makes perfect sense when you think about what is their larger view of the world. Why do they use the swastika, which is an Indo-Aryan fertility symbol, right? Right. Because in their mind, coming out of this 19th century supernatural imaginary, the first chapter, they recognize that the, the great races and civilizations, and of course we don't have scientific evidence for this, but this is their view of the world, all came from these Indo-Aryan races, which may have developed in Atlantis or what, or the, the Hyperborea, some ancient Aryan or racially pure Atlantean civilization, but at some point, because of a flood or giant blocks of ice, did migrate east, thereby populating India, uh, East Asia, Japan. And the reason all these superior civilizations occurred is because of the leadership of the Indo-Aryans, for whom the symbol of the swastika is the, you know, and the religion of Tibet. Why Tibet? Well, it's a high point where we, in a flood, a lot of the high priests of Aryan religion could have fled. And then they're trying to reinscribe those ideas back into their view of Nordic race and religion in the 20s and 30s. So that's kind of their view of the world. So it's not that odd. They just skip over the Slavs and Jews, yeah. right? Because those, <laughs> those are subhuman races or Africa. Yeah. All right. but, for, but Asia makes sense to them. We're, uh, we're talking to Eric Kurtlander. He is the author of Hitler's Monsters. Uh, it is a scholarly book on the, uh, the supernatural uh, leanings of the Third Reich and what... What was in the society that made them embrace Nazism? And what did the Nazis use to strengthen that embrace? More in a second. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. There's a book that is a must read. Um, but I warn you, it, it's going to take you a while just because it's so fascinating. You will jump out of the page and go, wait a minute, I've got to look that up. Uh, it's called Hitler's Monsters, Eric Kurtlander, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. This is a scholarly book. This is not a, you know, this is this is not pulp fiction. Um, it is uh, a, a deep dive uh, and well documented on what the Nazis believed and what they did. And Eric, I, 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 I want to 
I want to clarify one thing with you that I didn't I, I didn't walk away knowing for sure. Um, and maybe you don't know the answer. How much of this did they believe or make a pact with and how much was just being used? That that became a central question for me as I was going through different sources. So one thing I can say, Heinrich Himmler, Rudolf Hess, um, believed, truly believed in a lot of these different doctrines, border sciences like parapsychology, dowsing, um, astrology. They truly believed that if you did it in a scientific way, you could glean answers that mainstream science and religion would not give you. So he was looking into the whole, uh, Himmler was looking into the Holy Grail. Uh, yeah. He was at the end, he was, he was, I guess you could credit this to um, Tesla, but I'm not sure if he credited it more to Tesla or to Thor's hammer. Uh, I mean, exactly. he, which, which was it? Was it Tesla or was it, he believed the Thor hammer electricity in the air. We have the, I mean, Peter Longerish, one of the greatest historians of the Third Reich and the Holocaust, and other sources both corroborate him asking um, his acolytes to look into whether the energies that we associate with Thor's hammer can be somehow harnessed, that maybe they're not traditional scientific energies, but something more um, occult or hidden. And that's why certain of the gods had certain powers. He thought he was the reincarnation of um, Otto the Great, or Henry the Fowler, I'm sorry, one of the great um, medieval German princes. Many people have noted Himmler's actual investment in these ideas, as well as Hess. What I find, though, and that's where the real debate comes is that many other Nazis, Otto Ohlendorf, who led the Einsatzgruppen to kill thousands of Jews, he was seen as a kind of one of these technocrats, highly educated. Turns out he was pushing um, biodynamic agriculture and anthroposophic, which is an occult doctrine, um, approaches to the world as a kind of, not a substitute religion, but as a, something that could unite religion and science in the Third Reich. He's not normally associated with those ideas. Hitler had a dowser in the Reich Chancellery to look for cancer-causing death rays and gave an honorary degree to one of the progenitors of world ice theory. Some um, people, some, some in the Third Reich said that they found Mussolini through divining rods or, or, uh, or dousing over a map. And you document yeah. that really well. Did, did Hitler believe that stuff? So I would say Hitler is, he's perfectly representative of the, of the Nazi movement and maybe Austro-German society. He's right in the middle. He clearly believed in some of these doctrines because he'd grown up with them, and he didn't find traditional Catholicism compelling, and he didn't embrace modern science because he considered it a Jewish science and was too empirical. But he, was, he wasn't as invested as some other Nazis were, like Himmler or Hess. On the other hand, there were a few Nazis like Heydrich. He's one of the only leaders I can find who almost never shows authentic investment in any of these ideas and wants to combat them as another form of sectarianism. So he doesn't care what religion, occult, or philosophical doctrine you have, whether you're a liberal, communist, or even a conservative. If you're not a Nazi, that's potentially a problem. So Heydrich goes after occultists. But many of the other uh, leaders who claim they don't like the occult, like Rosenberg or Himmler, actually just don't like people who practice it in a way that challenges their beliefs. The minute, by the way, this is the problem with, with a lot of religion, right? People argue that they have the true faith and the true 
method or, or path to the Lord, right? So what you see in the Third Reich, much like occultism more generally, is claims that they're doing it scientifically. Mm. They understand it. These other people are charlatans. And many historians, when they saw that superficially, who weren't particularly interested in research, you say, oh, they're hostile to occultism. And I point out they're not hostile to it epistemologically. They're hostile to anyone who practices it in a way that isn't compatible with their racial ideas, their politics, their but propaganda. It, it, it actually worked to the West's advantage to some degree. Um, uh, the um, SS Obergruppenführer Kamler, who mm-hmm. was, uh, it, it was really only known for uh, making the crematoriums in Auschwitz uh, more effective was the replacement for von Braun in the rocket science department. Uh, because if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it because of a, a horoscopes or astrology? Um, I, we can't confirm it's because of astrology. What we can confirm is that Himmler preferred to have SS men who shared some of his approaches to science and politics and race theory around him more than than tried and true professionals like right. von Braun. And that's why Speer, as you see in my chapter, the, the primary sources I have from the archives are Speer reminding all the other Nazi leaders, we aren't going to come up with miracle weapons that are going to decide the war. This is propaganda. And then you have Goebbels and Himmler and Kamler saying, oh, no, we can do this with, with enough will, with enough faith, if we harness the right energies. And and clearly that tips over into the realm of border science very often. And it's, it's not empirical. It's, it's not something that's actually feasible. Towards the end, it seemed to really work to the West's advantage again. Uh, their race theory and their belief in these what you call border sciences. Um, uh, I was I was really interested in what you said that one of the reasons why we think that they weren't farther along with the nuke is because they saw that as a Jewish science. And so it was a little underplayed and the border sciences, the miracle weapons were, were looked at um, with possible equal uh, shot of it, it working. Do I have that right? Exactly. You have two parallel things going on. Obviously they lose a lot of the best scientists who may have been, quote-unquote, liberal or Jewish, right? Many who stay are still top scientists, Heisenberg, Max Planck, right, von Braun. But they're working in a pair, they're doing, they're, they're carrying out traditional science, mainstream science. And then you've got a lot of Nazis led by Himmler, who's got this whole institute, the Ananerba, the Institute for Ancestral Research, who's, who's frustrated they don't want to work with his scientists, who are operating based on folklore, and Indo-Aryan race theory, and want to experiment with hidden electrical energies. And, I, and at, the one thing I'm certain of is that the incompatibility of those two cultures certainly undermined some of their strategic mm-hmm. thinking. We know that Hitler and Himmler, because they read science fiction, liked the idea of rockets and, and you know, ships and jets, and didn't think in terms of these more abstruse ideas like nuclear physics, which not only is something you can't concretely hold or build, but is something they associate with abstract thinking of Jews and, and liberals and communists. Thank, so, thank God. <laughs> thank God. But, but in a way, um, now I, didn't, I can't quantify. A lot of the things I bring up in the book, as scholarly as it is, are things that someone else who's a specialist in these areas, armaments, military history, should really pursue and see to what degree this really did undermine their war effort. I suggest it did. 
Um, Speer suggests it does. But, um, you know, that that's a whole other line of research. Yeah. Uh, Eric, I, I could spend hours with you. I'd love to have you. I'd love to have you back because we haven't gotten into some of the miracle weapons and the bell, which, uh, you know, the, the flying saucer and anti-gravity stuff that they supposedly were working on, but we're really not sure if they were. Exactly. Um, uh, I'd love to continue our conversation on that. I, I do want to switch gears because you wrote another book, which I have not read. Uh, it is your first book. And I, uh, let's see if I have it. Uh, uh, the price of exclusion, ethnicity, national identity, and the decline of German liberalism. Um, just based on the title, I have a feeling we would have a lot to learn from that in today's world. We we would, and the second book, "Living with Hitler: Liberals in the Third Reich," which um, I think you'd you'd appreciate most of all. Uh, we we have slightly different political views, but I think you'll find the arguments in that book about the way that progressives kind of sold out uh, to fascism, not because they were fascists, but because they saw s- certain continuities that mm-hmm. that made accommodation possible. Um, I think I, you'd find that interesting, Eric. I don't. I don't want to turn you political, but if you had any historic um, uh, milestones that would be important, there's uh, CPAC announced that they are having uh, the National Front speak from France, which is a national socialist party. It um, is, and uh, and I, I think they're doing it um, because they'll say there's lots of things that we do have in common, and we don't have to take that and and this is a big movement that is happening all around and any any lessons from history well this is and if anything unites the three books i've written which have been written in a time when i would argue our liberal so-called liberal parties have moved to the right on socioeconomic issues and then in other ways embrace values issues value fight, fights over values and our right has done the same thing um what you see happening is uh, an unwillingness for very we would might we could maybe both agree that it's the role of Wall Street and government elites who don't want to fight it out over the actual empirical realities of how do you get the best health care or the best tax policy. They fight it out over ideology and values, and those values have moved more and more towards a what I would argue the populist right. So how do you win elections in America and France and the Netherlands now? You claim you're going to protect people in ways that can never quite be explained from global forces, other ethnicities, religions, terrorism, economic forces that both parties used to embrace, right? Trade. Mm-hmm. Oh, those are dangerous. And this, of course, moves both parties, but obviously our right wing more than our what I now call our center, towards what we used to call what we now call the alt-right, but we used to call fascism. And that's very dangerous. That's especially in America, you could always trust conservatives to defend the Constitution, to be at least classical liberals, right? And as you're pointing out, you can't always trust that anymore. And if our so-called liberals have to be the constitutional conservatives, we're in trouble, <laughs> right? They're the interventionists, right? They're the ones, the progressives, yeah, always the balances. want to tear down the Constitution or change it. And now they're the ones defending the FBI and the Constitution. We have a constitutional crisis. We have a political cultural crisis. I think both traditional conservatives and so-called liberals or progressives could agree on this. And the lessons of history from the 20s and 30s are scary ones yes. about the way this the way this happens. 
Eric, I'd love to talk to you again. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for the really hard work. This, the, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of books, and I don't think I've read one that I think took more hard work than this. This was turning over every stone. And thank you for your hard work. Oh, one more last question. Would mm-hmm. you definitely or would you definitively say the National Socialist Movement of Germany was not a Christian movement? Um, when you're talking about a country of 80 million people and 20 or 30 million who supported the Nazis, um, obviously lots of Christians saw something in Nazism, whether it was extreme nationalism, anti-Semitism, sure. um, Lutheran kind of patriotism. Sure. But when it comes to the leaders, and here's where I feel I'm on solid ground, those leaders were frustrated by traditional Christianity, which they linked to Judaism and to universalism and to... Um, a world beyond the here and now, which they saw as not helpful in creating a racial ancestor-worshipping blood-and-soil movement. That's why they liked Shinto and Hinduism and Buddhism, whether they interpreted those religions properly or not. They saw them as more compatible with creating a religion of the here and now. Eric, thank and, you. And so in that, I would, I would say they weren't, the leaders at least, were not Christians by any conventional sense of the word. No. Thank you very much, Eric. Hold on, if you would. I'd like to talk to you a bit. Hitler's Monsters is the book, A Supernatural History to the Third Reich. Eric Kurlander is the artist. We're going to have him back on again. There's so much to go through in this. Oh, I mean, I want to talk to him about all the miracle stuff. The bell. Did you, you even know what the bell is? Mm. It is, just look it up. Let's just look up Nazi bell. Uh, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Uh, and it's fascinating. Whether it happened or not, I don't know. So, what'd you think, Stu? I mean, it's fascinating. I, I'm a, as you are, and as, as several people around here are, uh, just real nerds when it comes to learning about that era, because it's just fascinating that any of that happened. I, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, horrifying. Horrifying. But then beyond that, you, it just the fact that these people somehow got power and did all this crazy crap with it is is just fascinating to me we should we should bring him in and then invite people to come and just you know come and just listen to him maybe spend a weekend with him because i i've done some research off of this book not not research research but just looking up some of the stuff that you googling all these books oh my gosh and it's (laughs) it's fascinating you watch some of the movies from the early 1920s in germany and all of a sudden so much just starts to make sense to you and you're like oh my gosh they never they never saw it coming Mm. they never saw it coming so uh the name of the book again is hitler's monsters available in bookstores everywhere glenn beck mercury 